Hey there. Welcome to one of our first stories of the podcast. I'm David All, and this is Belly of the Beast Life Stories and Beyond. In season three, we shouldered up with you and made it clear that this podcast is not for sale. No advertising or outside influence, a sacred and safe space. Starting with season three, we dedicate a poem to one of our listeners that is standing with us as an enabler of our mission. They're doing so by chipping in $5 at bellystory.com. To be true to our word, we're going back through some of our earlier content in seasons one and two and removing the segments that we feel may not be congruent with this idea. So enjoy. This story, like every other story on our podcast, is now 100% advertising free. A safe space where you can let your guard down, listen, and notice if something comes up in your soul. If you would like to be an enabler, and we certainly could use your help, visit bellystory.com and chip in $5 today. Now, here's that extraordinary life story. The goal of this podcast is to bring to life the nature of transformation through people's personal stories of getting knocked down in life and climbing up a new person. Listen for free wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this show so that other heroes can find it too. Let me introduce you to Charlotte Austin Jordan. That day was a horrible a horrible day for me. My only daughter. I had dreams. I was preparing for her to be a young woman, 18. Um, the debutante balls, the the uh, classes wanting her to be groomed, all of those things. And the life that I did not experience, I wanted to help her to be able to experience those things. Charlotte's story is what inspired season two of this podcast. It's a story that's both unimaginable and remarkable. Charlotte is a mother, a mother who lost two of her children innocently to gang violence in Los Angeles. But rather than being paralyzed by grief, Charlotte stood up and advocated successfully to reform criminal justice laws at every level of government. She started a nonprofit to help other mothers who had their babies killed and even created a jobs program to give at-risk youth an alternative to gang life. Charlotte, welcome to Belly of the Beast Life Stories. Thank you very much. Charlotte, In 2006, you were quoted by the Los Angeles Times as saying, when they gave that baby to you in your arms, that is when you started dreaming, planning the things you were going to do. It is a sense of pride that day. And then, to have that child taken from you, a part of you suddenly is missing. Yes. Will you take us back to that day in 1988? the day after Mother's Day? Well, 
1988, I was a single mom. I had two foster children, as well as my own three children. It was four boys and one girl. Jimmy was the girl, and Darius and Corey and Terrence and and uh, Czar were my my sons. It was a typical life. I had moved from the east side abusive relationship. I was on my own. We were doing well. I was the director of at the cable company that just come into Los Angeles. And we had a nice, modest house, and we were working—I was working hard to just bring this family up the right way. The day before Jimmy was murdered was Mother's Day, and they were all excited. The kids were excited to show me their arts and crafts or their gifts or let's have dinner. Jimmy got up and fixed breakfast for everybody. She was 13. And the boys uh, did the housework. So I felt like a little princess those few days in the house. They were pretty good kids. I didn't have any problems with gangs and uh, behavior. We'd have dinner as a family every Sunday. And then throughout the week, I would prepare meals. Uh, Friday was junk day. Saturday was do your own thing. But we always sat as a family so I could keep my finger on their life, what they were doing, how they were doing in school, what issues they might be confronted with. So I built a strong foundation for them, even though I was single, you know. And a 16-year-old, I had two 16-year-old boys, my son and another, my foster son. They were pretty good kids. They... um we had a couple of incidents where the drug dealers were trying to get them to come out and play. And uh, I remember one particular incident. I uh, chased the drug dealer off the porch, and I didn't have anything to defend the kids with but some rocks, some dirt rocks. And I threw dirt rocks till I got tired. But he stopped coming to my house, you know. So we just had a, a, a good time as a as a family unit. Visualize this for me. Mm-hmm. It's Monday night. You're cooking dinner for your youngest two children. Yes. And you hear gunshots. Right. Um, the babies were four and five, and um, they were hungry. Jimmy came in. She says, Mom, uh, Nikki's going to go, which was my neighbor. She's going to go to the store. Can I go with her? And I said, Yeah. You can go. Her and I had kind of been at odds. There were things that she needed to do in the house, and she wasn't doing them, so I was mad at her. And she was uh, on a punishment, and she kind of, you know, so I said, okay, well, your punishment's up, but you need to do what I need you to do. In order for us to function, you have to work with me. So she asked, could she go to the store with Nikki? And I said, yeah, here, take these bills and drop them in the mailbox. She came back, and um, she gave me a hug, and she told me, she said, Mom, I'm so sorry. I promise I'll be a good girl, and I'll follow what you want me to do. And I told her, I said, "Um, I love you, and 
I don't want to be harsh, but I want you to be safe. And when I asked you to do things, it's for a reason, not for just because I'm your mom, you do it. And you and I are the women in this house, and we have to work together. So she gave me a hug, and she went out the door. I got up, and I went to the stove, and I started preparing, warming up the meal that I'd already prepared for the babies. And I heard all of this gunfire. And um, while I was standing at the stove, it was like a really um, strange feeling, like I had dropped something. And I always say it was her soul. It was like something fell from me, and I started looking for it to see what that was. And then a few minutes later, um, my son, Corey, came to the door, kitchen door, and he said, Mom, where's Jamie? I said, she's out with Nikki. I said, somebody's child is being killed, but call 911. So a few minutes later, uh, a young lady, I don't know who she was, where she came from, but she knocked on the door, and she said, uh, you need to come. The girl next door, and I think... It's your house. You are the new people on the block, right? I said, yeah. She said, it's your daughter. You need to come. And Corey immediately handed, he was my oldest son, he immediately handed me the phone. And I told 911 what was going on. He ran down the block to see what she was talking about. So when I came out, the door to enter the yard, um, he was on his way back and he stopped me and he said, Mom, that's um, is Jimmy. So I just kind of pushed past him and went to, down the street to the end of the, they were about five houses from home. Uh, my neighbor was coming in from work. He was a mailman. And he said, uh, he ran with me, and he said, you see about your baby, and I'll see about Miss Stover's daughter. And um, we got to the car, and she had, my daughter, Jimmy, had been eating a hamburger. So uh, Latanya Stover's was the driver, my neighbor's daughter. She was 18. And they both didn't have sisters, so they kind of started this little bond and uh, talking to each other and hanging out. And uh, when I got to my daughter, um, as I was running to the car, I could see from my left side the, the uh, fire department was pulling up. And... Um, we reached the cars, and I opened the car door for her, for, for Jimmy, and uh, the food fell out the car. And I'm like, what is, you know, what's going on? What? And then I saw the bullets, the the blood, and, the, and, and you know, honestly, I don't remember after—I can't remember anything from the, other than the food falling out, and that's it. 
The I don't remember and seeing the ambulance. I don't remember seeing her physically seeing her. I, I, that part I don't remember, and um, but I do know the 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 uh, neighbor said Nikki had a hole in her head, and I. I don't even remember at the funeral home, they said Jimmy had defensive wounds, and I didn't know what that was. They needed gloves, and the defensive wounds is because she saw them, and she put her hands up for protection. And then the only other thing was I heard my babies in the background crying. They were in the bushes. They had cowered in the bushes, and they were crying, so I had to go get them you know, to pull them together and get them back to the house because I didn't want them to see that. But uh, that day was a horrible, a horrible day for me. My only daughter, I had dreams. I was preparing for her to be a young woman, 18, um, the debutante balls, the the uh, classes wanting her to be groomed, all of those things. And the life that I did not experience, I wanted to help her to be able to experience those things. And um, they cheated me. They cheated me. You know, it's uh, 30 years, and it gets better, but it doesn't go away. I still miss my daughter. I wanted to see what she was going to be like as a young woman. I wanted to see her children. She said she wanted to be a lawyer, and... uh I was excited about that. At 13, she already knew her destiny, what she wanted to do and what she wanted to be. She was very popular. She was a very likable, likable girl, very pretty. And uh, I have a memory of a 13-year-old, and today she would be 46. You know, uh, her birthday is coming in March, and um, that was always a mixture day for me. You know, I miss her. I think about her. I get a little wacky around March the 1st, and the, these two months, everything get kind of strange because my um, all of those feelings start resurfacing, but... I just really feel cheated. This was a time when drive-by shootings wasn't even in society. This term didn't exist. No. But I want to explain um, for the listeners mm -hmm. from an article exactly what happened okay. to your daughter. So this article says, The victims were sitting in a car that the assailants mistook for the car of the sister of a drug dealer who had cheated them out of $14,000 in cocaine, okay. investigators said. Nikki Stover, 18, and Jimmy Fenny, 13, 
were killed when gunmen fired a machine gun and a shotgun into their car at a street corner in South Los Angeles about 7.15 p.m. on Monday. Five men, all in their 20s, were arrested Tuesday on suspicion of murder. Assistant Police Chief Jesse Brewer said the five men went out looking for revenge Monday morning after an unidentified drug dealer allegedly gave them flour instead of cocaine. The angry gang members riding in two cars saw Nikki's red Pontiac at St. Andrew's Place and Vernon Avenue and mistook it for the red Hyundai of the dealer's sister. One of the gang's cars pulled up in front of Nikki's car. The other sped past while its occupants sprayed gunfire striking both of the girls in the head. Drive-by shootings? Were you one of the first families to experience this? Oh, no. Drive-bys in South Central Los Angeles were common. We probably were one of the first families that lost girls. It was always a male-on-male crime. It was a common thing. They were sentenced or tried or charged with a lesser crime because that was a new term, drive-by shootings. We didn't have anything like that. When you say we didn't have anything like that? Laws. We did not have any laws on the book that talked about drive-by shootings, not even uh, assault rifles. They purchased those assault rifles Earlier that day, fully armed and ready with ammunition to fire. And that was not—there was nothing in place to to stop anyone from walking into a hardware store that sold—or a surplus store that sold ammunition and guns to buy them fully loaded and ready to go. So it was kind of a open environment. When it came to laws, they would do 18 months, 18 months, good time behavior, two days off of one day of serving time, as long as they didn't get in trouble. The law, I think they were uh, um, prosecuted under a, um, it was a misdemeanor, which that meant they would get 18 months for a murder as a drive-by, and that was—I I never understood that, and I just knew they would get out early, and they would brag about it. I'd kill them and get 18 months. I need a rest anyway. This was the, the mentality in the community, but it was—because I wasn't involved in that, I didn't have a clue why they got out so soon, and— uh, once I found that out, it was like, okay, I need, we need to fix this. I need a senator that's not scared to ride, and let's put some laws in place and change this. Carjacking. No, we didn't, we had horse stealing laws. If you stole somebody's horse, but they had any, they still in a car, but not shooting people from a moving car. That wasn't even a law. And if there's no law, I mean, help us understand this a little bit, just from mm-hmm. our perspective, just right. hearing this for the first time. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? That means that the prosecutors will find a lesser charge or a similar kind of 
charge a law on the books to be able to apply to that particular scenario. And at the time, it was a misdemeanor, pretty much. It was a misdemeanor. So there was only a year to two years, well, maybe a two-year sentence. And then they got this good time, bad time. You get the days off or, you know. So we were scrambling trying to figure out what laws do we change. There was no law to say we need a waiting period for you to buy an assault rifle. They went in and armed themselves in less than two hours because because they had the money to do so. And then in turn come to my community and shoot it up like it's the OK Corral. It wasn't even OK Corral because nobody was shooting back. They These were girls minding their own business, doing the things that they were supposed to do. You know, I have people tell me, oh, I've, um, it's so sad she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. No, she wasn't. She was going to the store. Who was in the wrong place at the wrong time were men armed with assault rifles running around in my community. That's who was in the wrong. You know, it just, it was crazy. (laughs) I want to go back to that time period as well to talk about other things in your life that started to fall apart or that you lost due to this forced change in your life. Okay, so you figure I'm a single mom. I had a good job. Um, I couldn't focus anymore. It was what had happened to my family, my foster children. I had to find uh, other family members to take them because I couldn't focus on the large family setting. And ultimately, it was just Darius and Corey, and I was able to handle that. The sleepless nights, I lost my income. I mean, just the fear of being in the community. I was afraid of if two or more African-American males came towards me, I would almost pass out. The fear, my freedom was lost. My ability to move and maneuver in my community was threatened. I no longer felt safe. And these are the men that look like my brothers and my dad, my uncle, and now I'm definitely afraid of them. In 1996, the nightmare continued with the death of Corey, with the murder of Corey. He was wearing gang colors, rival gang colors. He wasn't involved with gangs. He had on a uniform, a work uniform. Corey, he had a hard time with that because he was 16. And he told me one day, he looked at me and he said, Mom, why should I listen to you? You told me if we did things right and did them the way you told us we would be okay, but one of us aren't. And I couldn't say anything, and I was like, but you just have to trust me. You, he, um, the night she died, the next night, the gang members or the boys that he knew in the community was like, we're going to go and do some retaliation. 
I opened this door, and both him and my steps, my foster son, they were 16. They're sitting on the bed, and they're loading and, and oiling up guns, right? And I look at both of them, and I, I said, what you're getting ready to do is the same thing what was done to us. You cannot go out here and open fire on people. You don't know who did it. We don't know yet. Let the police handle it. I had to talk those guns out their hands. You know, they're 16-year-old boys, and their sister is just murdered, and they want revenge. But thank God I had enough influence to be able to walk out the room with those guns in my hand. You know, Corey missed his sister. He was angry because we lived a life of just trying to get by. We weren't trying to hurt anybody, take anything from anyone, just enjoy the life and the space that we have. And it was violated. My sanity was challenged. You know, my authority as a parent, I felt like a failure. I was supposed to take care of her. I was supposed to protect her, and I didn't. And I had to forgive myself. Had I been on that corner and had nothing but a toothpick, it would have been a problem. I would be dead because I would have tried to protect her with what I had. Later, seven years later, I met my husband. It was a challenge for Corey, another man in the house. He's the man of the house. He had been the man of the house since he was like nine. They finally got along. You know, they came up with some common ground. Corey walked me down the aisle. I got married. I had some stability. I had some happiness. It was always so sad. Christmas was sad. You're fixing dinner for your family and a missing plate. You know, one less plate. I'm going shopping for Christmas and, oh, what am I going to get for Jimmy? No, Jimmy. So, Corey walked me down the aisle and um, three months later, I got that phone call. He told me, he said, Mom, I'm going to run by um, Granny's. She's not feeling well and pick her up a soda. And uh, uh, he went to her house. He had his son, and he said, can you watch the baby, and I'll be back. And I was like, sure. He went to my mother's house. She said she wanted a 7-Up, and uh, one of his friends passed that. Um, passed by that he went to school with, and he was in Berkeley College, and he came down to visit, and they hung out. He says, come on, let's walk to the store. And that was not something that was common for Corey to walk to the store. They went to get the soda, talking about old times. Corey had just got off from work. Um, He was a janitor for the school district, so he had on a blue... Khaki, that's what they wear, the khaki pants and the khaki top uniform. And um, a car passed them, and 
They went in the store, came back out. When they came out, whoever the driver was of that car saw them and walked back. He parked, walked back to them, and he asked them what set were they from. He had the gun on the friend, and Corey drew the attention and said, oh, man, we don't gangbang. What's going on? Why you want to do this? And uh, he called Corey a smartass and put the gun in his um, side. You know, and I remember when they told me it was a twenty-two. you know how you try to trade off? Oh, I wish it wasn't a thirty-eight. I wish it wasn't an assault rifle. I wish it was. It would have been a small caliber. I'm here trying to rationalize what type of gun my son should have been shot with. He was shot with a twenty-two, but a modified bullet, which on the streets they called it a tumbler. So the bullet entered, the, pierced the side, and then it just bounced around. He had two children, and his wife was expecting a baby. She was in, she was like eight months, nine months pregnant. And then when, um, the courts, the police department, they, I worked with them. I built a relationship with them uh, because of uh, the things that I was doing in the community, the Mothers on the March. We would go in front of drug houses and stand and dare them to come out and sell dope in our community. Um, the police, when they realized it was my son, they were trying to figure out um, how to help me, how to uh, get the case solved, but they weren't moving fast enough for me. And I went in this community with two other mothers, and I solved the case and brought them back the information. They were like, thank you, but you could have got killed. I had nothing to lose from that point. I didn't care. I needed justice for my grandson. We laid my son to rest in uh, July 27th, and his youngest was born August 4th. And he would never know what a father's love feels like. You know, it's different from a boyfriend or a new husband. It's not the same from your as your father. And he tells me that all the time. I just wish I could have met my dad. But ultimately, what I've discovered through my work here with you and through reading about you and your story is you were never really paralyzed by grief. No, I was paralyzed when I go in the house but at 8 o'clock at night. But I knew I had to do something to change the situation. Not My children were gone, but I needed to protect the other children. The day Jimmy died, there were—they had shut the streets down, and I knew that day I had to do something— I'm standing—I'm in the only house in the front yard, the only house with a gate around the yard, and I'm standing in the yard, and at the house next door where the gang members hung out, they assembled, and they're MFing the police, and they're cussing, and the one of the mothers come out of the house, and she puts her finger on the police's nose, and she calls him all kinds of— mofos and you name it, she did it. 
And so my mom tells me, she says, Charlotte, you need to come in, baby. Uh, it's getting bad. Because I wasn't, I was just sitting, just trying to figure out what just happened. And um, all I could hear was on my coming towards me from the right was a shoo, 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 shoo. I didn't know what it was. And I looked, and it was police in riot gear. And then on the other side, I hear trunks popping and come on, MF, and it's the gang members pulling out guns, right? So my mom told me to come in. I got up. I went in my living room, and I took two steps, and I couldn't move. I had to turn around. I pivoted around on one foot. My mom says, what are you doing? I said, I can't leave them out there. She said, yes, you can. You come back here. I leaped from my steps. It was a stoop four steps down from my step to the middle of my yard. And I turned to the police and I put up my hand and I said, hold it. And they stopped. They literally froze. And then I turned to the guys and I said, my child is in this car and she's been shot a number of times. So have your friend Nikki. And you guys are out here getting ready to fight with the police who didn't do it. If you want to do something, help them find out who did this or get in your cars and go home. A couple of boys said, man, she's right. She's right. They got in their cars and left. Uh, Daryl Gates was the police at that time, the police uh, captain. And he came to the house and he said, uh, you don't know what you did. The police were not backing down and those young men were not backing down. And we thank you for it because it was going to be a bloodbath, but I'm in the middle, right? And it was automatic. It was not like I had to figure this thing out. I just felt like you, I heard this voice say, you can't leave them. My mom is on the porch crying, please come in. Oh, they're going to kill my child. Shut up. Come in the house. You don't know what you're doing. But it worked. And I said, from that day, I have a voice. I can either fight or cry or run, and I'm not doing either one. I'm fighting. You were ready to take on the court system? Yeah. You were ready to take on the gang violence? Yes. You were ready to stand with other mothers yes. in the community who had lost their children? Correct. You were ready to look at your son, Darius, and yeah. say, you're a grounding force in my life. This is very powerful yes. to have you here. Yeah. You were ready to not just for fight for yourself and what you're feeling inside of you and about this loss, mm -hmm. but you were ready to stand up and say, this entire system has got to change. Right. When they told you that your daughter's murder wasn't going to be tried as a murder. There was no charge. And I'm like, what? What do you mean there's, what are you talking about? And they said, we have a transfer of intent to kill the driver of the red car, which means we can put that on 
charge on Mrs. Stover, but we don't have a law. And I'm like, why didn't you have a law? What are you? What? What happened to the law? No one ever put the law in place. So I was like, okay, now I'm a cable mom. I'm a soccer mom. I don't know anything, but I need to talk to somebody. We got to fix this. If this is what's going on, this is a big hole. How do you tell me my daughter's murder is not a value? The the perpetrators were not going to say, okay, Jimmy, we're not trying to kill you. We're trying to kill the girl in the red car driving. So you pull over and get out. Bottom line, she died as a result of their actions anyway. So that was the first thing we had to fix. And then the drive-by, the carjacking, those were laws that didn't even have laws. Those were murders, that uh, crimes that didn't even have laws. And then we were going through the impact stage, the sentencing, and then the impact. And they tell me, I can't speak to anyone until after uh, the case has been, the jurors come back with the verdict. And I'm like, but that makes no sense. In court, we're going to court, and they're, they're trying to call her by her toe tag, which is the day you were murdered, the month you were murdered, the day you were murdered, and the time. That's not her name. She had a name. She had a family. She had people who loved her. I was not able to speak to the jurors before they did a verdict to tell them, you know, you hear, oh, the the perpetrator was a poor little soul and his mother was on drugs and he lived in an abusive family. Well, Jimmy had a working mother who loved her just the same and who put everything in her path to be successful and to live a good life. You need to know that. Who's not valuing anyone's life, but she was a person too. Not a toe tag. And I couldn't use that law. We changed it to speak before the jurors before this, they go out for deliberation. But I was able to do it when my son died. I was also able to clear the path. I had three grandsons, African-American boys, and a surviving son, and a number of nieces and nephews. And I needed my community to be safe for them. For them. I And who was going to do it? There is no Martin Luther King. There's no Captain Save a person. There's only me. And I can only be accountable for my actions, not for what someone else says they, if they could have, should have, would have. What did I do? The victim's impact statement, <laughs> which we all have heard of now. Right. That's something that didn't exist no. before this case. None. You had to sit on the sideline and hear about poor little Johnny and poor little Reggie and whoever else had a bad life, but you couldn't say anything about to the jurors that matter. It matters that these people were judging on this, know that this person was loved and was a good person, and that person had no right to take their life. 
You know, the guy that killed my son was 41 years old and I was 42. He should have been somewhere raising his grandkids, but because of our shoddy laws, he was able to do all kind of criminal activity and get out through this revolving door. That's why I was talking to Governor Wilson about um, the three-strike law. We're like playing baseball here. If my kid can make it to home plate, we got a home run. But you got criminals on every base. We need to take them off those bases to give our kids a clean shot at getting home safe. You were quoted at the time as saying, the deceased is just a name, a picture. I was a reminder to the jury that Jimmy was a person. Right. I knew I had a purpose, and that was to represent my child. Right. I, I, as I said before, in the courtrooms, it's all about the defendant. But what about the victim? The judge, the uh, lawyer, Ann Ingalls, she came out and she said, Charlotte, I need to do something to get the jurors to see the impact of what these men did. Because they hear about mamas being on drugs and daddies doing this. and They heard all that, so they got the sympathy heart. But I need to show them, so here's what I'm going to do. She brought in two mannequins, one of Jimmy and one of Nikki. And she put these um, pointers, those arrow pointers, coming out of the body where the bullets were. And when I walked in the courtroom for lunch, from lunch, I almost passed out because I didn't realize how many times Jimmy was shot. Jimmy was shot 15 times, and Nikki was shot like seven or eight, right? And her 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 vat her. Life was on our papers or our courts were not—her murder was—her life was not even valued. So something's wrong with this picture. Yeah, yeah, the same article actually says, When I saw that doll with all those sticks through the arms and one clear through her head, it was really hard. But I kept on going. I couldn't back down. No, I did. And I had to do things like bring a picture— and when they talked about the hard evidence, I sat there in silence. They tried to get me kicked out of court because I was that dis- I was that visible person when it came to Jimmy and Nikki because her mom was ill, so sometimes she couldn't come. I was that visible person, and so. When they brought those, I, I, I can't remember. I think it's when they brought those dolls in, or or something in that time frame. I, yeah, the dolls were there. I was already emotionally upset, and I'm trying to hold it in. Right, I cannot hold it in anymore. So I got up immediately to run to the door to go outside the door, and that door was like. Ten miles away, I was trying to, struggling to get to the door just not to cry. I mean, I couldn't even cry. I couldn't shed a tear. I couldn't talk. I couldn't say. And then they, we come back in. Oh, we're going to take a, a a recess, come back in. Well, we want the mother put out because she made this outburst. Well, what the hell did you think I was supposed to do? I'd seen my baby being 
What you showed me was how many times she had been shot. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And then to visibly see it, and then you expect me not to cry? Okay, we fight now. You want to fight? Okay, I'm going to show you something. I was there every day. I brought a picture. I listened to that evidence. When it got tough, I looked at the picture, and I talked to Jameen, and I'm like, I'm not moving. I'm not crying. You're not a crybaby. You got to fight. You got to, this is not going to happen. I could have got a DA reject. They could have thrown it out. They probably would have picked it up later, but it would have cost me, it was five years of my life consumed before I can actually lay her to rest. It was, as long as her name was circulating in those courtrooms, I could not put her to rest. On January 31st, 1992, the five killers were sentenced. You said, I have officially put my baby to rest. She will no longer be a floating name in the court system. Uh But my future is scary. Now I have to go on. This was five years of your life. Right. You lost your job. You had to give your foster children away to other family members to take care of them. This was an extended amount of time. Yes. It was extremely hard because now where she still was alive to me, she was still a part of me because I had to go and see about something for her, pertaining to her, what mothers do. And on that day, it was the sentence was handed down. The court is getting ready to go dark. And what do I do? It had became such a difficult task to just even say, I'd say who I was. I was originally Charlotte Austin, a mother of three children and two foster children, right? Now I have to introduce myself as Charlotte Austin, a mother of, of the four boys, or my numbers are off right now, and no daughter. Do you have a daughter? Uh, yeah, I have a daughter. Oh, where is she? I'd like to meet her. I have to explain this person. This is a whole nother, I had to re-identify. It's not easy to say I don't have a daughter. I do have a daughter, I do have a daughter, you know, and people ask, you don't know if you want to today talk about it or explain what happened or you just answer, yeah, I got uh, four boys and two girls and a a girl, you know, you don't know what you want to say. You you have to reinvent how you present yourself. It's something as simple as that or... My life was consumed with court. I learned stuff I didn't even know anything about, but I had to, you know. I remember being appointed to Department of Justice uh, for the Juvenile Justice Division. I didn't know what I was doing up there, but I learned because it was going to make my community better. I had to know what I was doing. You know, it, it it was a it was a difficult. Where do I go? What do I couldn't focus on a job? 
I could not focus on a nine to five. So I started helping, helping the kids in the community, getting them out of the streets, giving them a place to come and stay and hang out. You've said before that you were dealt poison and you made medicine. Yeah, that's what it was. That was poison. That was not a healthy thing or purpose for anybody. So I felt like, okay, what do I do with this? I could drink this and sit on the side. If I blew my brains out, people probably would have never felt like I shouldn't have. I understand. She was in a bad place. It was times where I felt very depressed. I didn't want to be here anymore, but I had other children and I had other things and I had to focus on those things. And I took that med- that poison that they gave me and I used it for the betterment or medicine for my community, holding rallies, bringing food to people, mothers on drugs, talking to them in their comforts of their home and helping them get off of those drugs, going to AA meetings with them, talking to the young men in my community, showing them there's a better path, getting people jobs, you know, not just sitting around talking about it, but be about it, about it. Be about it, about it, doing what I am supposed to do to help. Not myself. It's about others. I was dealt. I I always felt like, God, you gave—I did pray. You gave me this. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. But I'm only asking, Lord, if you—this is what I am supposed to do. Make it easy and successful. Clear my path that I can do all that I can to help someone else. Corey's death came a few years after the sentencing. Right. And can you talk to us about what that trial was like, how you looked at that situation? Did you look at it differently since you'd just gone through something that was so tragic and took so much of you? I um, had—I was able to deal with it better. I went through—there was a program called Loved Ones of Homicide Victims. Johnny Cochran, Norma Johnson, some DAs, they all, Chris Darden, they all got together and they opened this program for counseling. So I went through that, and uh, that helped me to understand death. I had no control of it. I was not the blame of it. I blamed myself a lot for Jimmy's death, learning that God has his own time. It's not, we have no control. If I could have, should have, would have, was not going to work. So when Corey died, I was more equipped to deal with it. People came over, oh, I just wanted to see if you're okay, and I just know that you're destroyed. No, I'm not destroyed. My biggest battle was done with Jimmy. I learned my steps. I learned what I needed to do. I tried not to deal with the community anymore. It's like, okay, I don't want to do this, really, right? And... um I could do something else. I, I don't have to spend my time chasing somebody else's kids. I can go live the happy life with my new husband and and be done with it. But Corey's death brought to my attention, nope, you need to keep going. You're in this fight, and you have to change your community. You have to do—you can't put it on someone else being there. 
push it on to Mr. Johnson down the street. What did you do? You didn't walk in here with a list of accomplishments. You didn't hand me a book of bills that you've helped pass in the state at the federal level. You didn't show me your awards, and there are many, many, many <laughs> yeah. that are out there. The, the prestigious Essence Award, for example, is very important. Mm-hmm. 60 Minutes, mm-hmm. all sorts of talk shows talking about your story and what's happened. Mm-hmm. You didn't do any of that. Mm-hmm. And the picture that I that comes to mind as mm-hmm. I sit here mm-hmm. is of you pivoting on one foot slowly Facing your community and saying, not today. Not today. Not while I'm here. Right. Those awards were all, I appreciated them, but I needed tools to help me with my community. You know, uh, I had to go, the library was throwing away books. They were taking them to get them burned. And a guy that knew me and what I was doing, he brought the books to me. So my kids had books to read. You know, I had uh, Playa Vista, Playa Capital come in and work with me and give people jobs who had the less. They were ex-felons. They had children. They were living with their mom or dad or considered homeless. And they gave them good jobs, even homes. They did a lottery. It's like, what else can we do, Charlotte? Give them a house. They'll protect the community. This, they're homeowners now. Um, those were the things that we needed, resources. You know, we all have something we can do to make this community. We don't have separate communities. We're one community, you know, because I live in Beverly Hills. Oh, that's not my community because I'm in Watts. No, it's one. If you can get in a car and drive there, it's one community. We have to build a strong community, and it takes a commitment from all of us. The three strikes law mm-hmm. that you helped change right. with Governor Wilson, mm-hmm. you helped create in the state of California. Yes. Ironically, that's the law that ultimately put your son's killer away for the rest of his life. Absolutely. I I remember walking into court, and the judge that handled my daughter's case was on that floor, Jacqueline, I can't remember her name, very classy, a very nice uh, uh, judge. And I said, oh, I'm, she's still here. I'm just going to stop in. And when I went in the courtroom, she was coming out of her chambers to give her assistance something. And she, she remembered me. And she said, I followed your career. I was like, it's not a career. It was a mission. And uh, I said, She says, what are you doing here? And I told her, I said, my son was murdered, and I have to go to court. And I said, the court number. And I said, oh, I realized I was in her court. And she was like, oh, my God. But the laws that we were able to change were I was able to use them during my son's, like the three strikes. She asked— I can't remember her last name, but Judge Jacqueline, I know that's her first name. She said, Miss um, Austin, there he has to come back because he has some felonies. He has two felonies. I'm not sure if he's a three-strike or not. Do you want to come back? And I told her no. I, I knew he was, and I said, 
she had given him 85 years for my son's murder. And I said, if uh, he has three strikes and he has the 85, because he's 41 now, he's not going to come out. I don't think he's coming out of the year. I'm okay with it. And then when it was time for sentencing, um, we had to do the impact statement, and I got the opportunity to use it before the jurors went to deliberate on my son's murder. I was able to address them and tell them about him and him being a father, hardworking young man, and I felt really good about that. You're, in fact, talking about Superior Court Judge Jacqueline Connor. Jacqueline Connor. That's, I thought that was it, but I wasn't quite And sure. she is the same person, that as you ha- said, that had sentenced your, the five killers of, that killed Jimmy. Right. And she's the same person who sentenced the, Corey's killer. Right. She had to definitely uh, make it aware to the— his defense attorneys that she did handle my daughter's case, but she was a very fair and no nonsense. I remember with Jimmy's case, they kept their 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 judges. It was five defendants, so they had two attorneys each, and they kept playing with the calendar so that. I would not appear in court. They kept switching up the days. Oh, I can't be here that day or don't show up. So I was like, okay, what am I going to do? And I sat down with a friend of mine. Her name was Jean Foster. We sat down at work and uh, we wrote this letter. She says, but Charlotte, who's going to send this letter to? I said, I'm sending it to the governor, the mayor, the congressman, the councilman, the president, and I sent it to all those people. You've got them on speed dial. I No, I didn't. Have, <laughs> I just I did those, addressed them, and sent them in the mail. And when we got to court uh, about two weeks later, she said, uh, who's Miss Austin? I raised my hand. I'm like, I forgot I sent the letters right. She raised, I raised my hand. She says, would you stand up? I stood up. She says, I don't know what kind of letter you sent, but I got a call from Bill Clinton, from all, she went through the list of all these people who called. She said, and it wasn't his assistant. It was Bill Clinton himself. She said, don't, don't do that again. Whatever you did, whatever letter you sent, don't do it again. And then I think a few months later, I was supposed to be on um, one of those big talk shows, and they were going to Skype Bill Clinton in to talk to me, but it took Huffington, whatever her name is, it took forever. So they started losing ratings. They shut it down. But I I was that kind of person. I'm going to go to the top and then to the bottom. I'm not going to start at the bottom. I'm going up here first. You the man, you can make it stop. And then I sent everybody, and then I sent who I, I CC'd everybody on who received the letter. So she got a call from all those people. I wasn't playing. I would say, okay, they started the fight. I'm going to finish it. Can you tell us about Jimmy's house and Corey's youth services? Okay, so um, Jimmy's house never got off the ground. I was working. My dad uh, passed, and he left a house for me um, to turn it into Jimmy's house. And I couldn't—that was to be—that was to house at-risk youth that didn't have families, foster kind of thing. So we never did that. But uh, Corey's Youth Service, we ended up 
uh, providing life wraparound services, life skill training, job readiness. Uh, we even taught how to go and interview, help them get clothing to go and interview, financial literacy, how to manage and maintain their checks when they got them. And all of that was done by donations. I have very good community partners like Chris Darden, Johnny Cochran, Judge Clara Williams. There were a lot of people who donated and kept us going, but I f- had to figure out a way to generate an income so that the program could continue and not depend on donations. I have Warner Brothers. I mean, you name it, I go ask and if they say no, I put a pink bow on it and take the blue one off and go back and until I got a yes, right? And um, we opened a charter school. And through that school, was able to afford the facility cost, staffing, and then we added the wraparound services. We were still able to provide those services within the, the organization. So we over those years, we graduated over 2,000 children that LA Unified said, leave, go home, have a good life. You're 16. You don't have enough credits. So we built a system that would actually get them their high school diploma. Some of them, we got them in, um, what do you call it, uh, dual enrollment. They were going to college and to high school at the same time. So they would finish with their associate right after high school. And they were like, Miss Jordan, I can't go to college. My mom said I can't afford college. I said, where do you go every morning you come here those two hours? Oh, to trade tech. I said, well, what do you think trade tech is? Oh, I've been going to college all this time. Yeah. So, yeah, it it actually did a lot of work to help and support the community. Mother's Day, my phone blows up. Every all the kids, Miss J, I got kids now, and and I got married. I even had a couple uh, kids were getting married. And it's like we held the wedding because we wanted you to be here, and you're, and I really didn't party with them, trying to keep a separate life. And I'm like, oh my God, Angel, go ahead and marry the woman, and I'll see you when I get back. I'm out of town. They hold up the wedding to held up the wedding for waiting for me to come. You know, or Latino custom is to take the baby in from the hospital home and stay inside for 45 minutes. But they would leave the hospital and bring the baby to put it in my arms, you know. And so those it was the money wasn't great, but the reward of seeing someone on another path or their life is better, that was the greatest satisfaction ever. You know, they call me now, I'm the director over here at such and such a hospital. I'm like, oh my God. And you were the one that was trying to sell drugs out of my school. But we set a foundation for them. We set um, expectations for them, for their lives. And and they're doing, they're doing quite well. From that very first day of pivoting around the community and mm-hmm. and putting a stop to more gang violence in your own front yard <laughs> to reaching out to the top, right, to the president, to, yeah. the, to the governor, to the mayor, mm-hmm. to the DAs, to sitting in court day after day, mm-hmm. to being there, to being a face on TV talking about this issue, to organizing mothers mm-hmm. who have been 
involved in similar homicide cases right. who've lost their children. Mm-hmm. And you told me before this is – it's nothing new. A, one child a day is still killed in Los Angeles Absolutely. due to gang violence. Yeah. And I want to ask you this question. And we've learned that from our greatest wound comes our greatest gift to the world. Yes. And when you were standing at that oven and you felt something drop uh-huh. physically, uh-huh. drop from you, uh-huh. looking back now, do you feel like maybe nothing ever dropped and that you've always had that with you? Um, I, it's kind of a double-edged thing. Yes, I lost, right? That was my own child. And that was the most precious gift God could have gave me. But guess what? When I opened my school and I opened my community center and I opened up my house, I got that back. Chris Darden says that. He says, that damn Charlotte want to be everybody's mom. (laughs) You know, I got 200 children, 200 girls that I deal with daily, right, that I can pass those Etiquettes to those, how to dress, the fun things that mom do, and that's how I treat them, like I'm their mom. The boys, the same way. I lost Corey, but I gained hundreds of boys, and I don't feel like I, 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 I was cheated out of the fact that those were my children. God gave them to me, and no one should have harmed them, but I also... Um, take great satisfaction in the fact that I was able or am able to love many other children. That makes sense? Yeah. I I don't miss—I miss my children. I miss their lives, but I've gained so many other—so much more insight in other people's lives and helping them. And the joy is still the same. The lessons are still the same. It's just a different child. So, yeah, it's a, I mean, they don't understand, people don't understand when they take someone's life, what they do. You know, I hear people talking about the guns and all that, but I tell them often, I walk in my, I tell you, walk in my shoes one block, not that mile they talk about. Walk in my shoes one block and then come back and tell me if assault rifles are okay to carry around the community open carry. Anybody got access. You mad today and you decide you want to go shoot up the community. You got babies, grandsons, granddaughters, daughters. Is it really that important? You can have it. Have it at home. We don't need to brandish that kind of thing in front of our children or easy access that you get mad and where you could have talked about it now you got this false courage hanging on your hip, and you're going to shoot it out about it. They don't get it until they, till you lay down a child, until you lay down your child. She wasn't a grown woman. She wasn't a mother. She had a whole life. My son, too. And the to go to this cemetery and lay that child to rest? Who should be doing that? Our children are supposed to bury us, not we bury them. 
I wish every day it could have been me and allowed her or him to live. I would trade places with them in a heartbeat. I felt like my life was, I did a lot, but at 13, what did she do? Well, what kind of life did she have? You know, he was 25. What kind of life did he, his children, his sons. I thank God she didn't have any children. She didn't even have a boyfriend, the first boyfriend, you know. And uh, we think it's okay to run around with those kinds of guns, to be shot. When, I'm telling you, when they put that, that mannequin in front of me with all those holes, it was like, a realization that came over me that I can't even explain. Why would you do that to another human being? Jimmy died 32 years ago, <laughs> the day after Mother's Day. If you had a chance to talk to your younger self the day before it's Mother's Day and you're sitting down right before all of this is about to happen, <laughs> before you're about to dive into the belly, what would you say? I don't know. I, I, I did all I can do. I don't have any regrets. I was the best mother I could be. I wish I could have bought more stuff, but was the stuff more important than the love I gave? The love I gave to my each one of them replaced the stuff, you know, but I would just love them every day, love them every minute. You know, I remember at the grave, her grave, I went to take some some flowers, and she had just turned, it was her 14th birthday, and I was boohooing, and oh, my God. And the guy on the lawnmower came, and I had to get up. It was at lunchtime. I left my job to take the flowers, and he cut my key, my car key. So I couldn't leave. And they called a locksmith up. So while I was there, I heard this voice. And every Friday, okay, so it would be Friday and Saturday, I go to loved ones of homicide. And I do the grief and I go home and Sunday, I felt bad Monday. I felt worse Tuesday. I felt a little better Thursday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then I'm back at it again on Friday and Saturday at the cemetery. So this voice told me, and it was clear, said, she was not yours. She was mine. She was a gift for you to enjoy as long as I allowed it. Get up, leave her here, and do not return. So on Monday, Friday, Saturday, I'm at the cemetery putting flowers and grieving, I'm, and then I take her home, the feeling and the pain home with me, and then I started all over, and I did that for a year. When I heard that voice, I put those flowers on her grave. I got up from there, and I left, and I never returned. My mother is buried just in the same area, just a little dis distance. Corey, too. When Corey died, I didn't go there anymore. I buried, Corey is 10 graves from her. I buried him. I did the service at the uh, the burial site. 
I got in my car and I left. They said, don't you want to come over, my siblings? Don't you want to come over here? Jimmy's grave is right here. It's like, no. Mom's grave is right here. Don't you want to go? No. And if I have, we're kind of all buried in the same in the same location. If I go, I go and do the service, pay my honor and uh, uh, my respect to that person that died, and I leave. I don't visit my mother. I don't visit my son. I don't visit her because they're not there anymore. And all it does is was giving me pain over and over and over. I had to let it go. I had to let it go, and I did. I did. That voice told me to get up and leave her here and don't return, and I did not return. And from there, my life started getting better. You have met a lot of women that have been in this situation. Mm-hmm. What's the first thing that you do or say or, like, how are you in this situation when you meet a mother who's <laughs> just lost their child? Um, the first thing I say is it gets better. It Right now, it seems like the whole world is upside down. And trust me, you don't forget, but you learn how to deal with it. And you'll learn right now it's fresh. I'm here. No matter what time, what, when you need me, I'm coming. And for me, what was hard when people would come and say, Oh, you poor thing, I know how you feel. And then... You had a child killed? No. How do you know how I feel? You don't know how I feel. Or it was an accident. It was a mistake. See, accidents you can correct, mistakes you can correct, but you can't correct murder. That's a done deal. Okay? So it's being, when you say to a mother, I know how you feel, make sure you know how you feel, how she feels not just saying it to say words, right? Those mothers are going through an emotional turmoil. The That child, you were its first friend. You taught that baby how to walk. You fed that baby. You clothed that baby. That baby depended on you. Not dad. When, when, when he needed a diaper change, dad's bringing him here, honey. Straight to you. You need to be fed. You did it. And so they become, they replace self for them, for their needs. You no longer have any needs. It's about them. And that's the same way with the relationship. Your needs are who you are as a person is gone. People say, oh, no, it's not. Yes. You start taking care of that person, that child and for someone to come and treat your baby i've heard women say their babies were put in trash cans they were raped molested and and put in a trash can you know you would go to battle with the devil for your child's safety and to have someone to come and kill your child and then throw it away like it's a piece of trash, shoot my child down like she was nothing. She was somebody. She was mine. She was mine to love, to raise. You didn't have to touch her. You didn't have to 
be around her. You didn't have to deal with her. Yes, she had a snippety little attitude, but she was my snippety little attitude. I would have never abused her. So how dare you come into her life and don't know her and abuse her in that fashion? And so those mothers are dealing with that pain. You you have to forgive yourself because as a mother, I was supposed to protect her. The fathers too. The fathers grieve. You're the man. I'm the man of the house, and I couldn't protect my child. I couldn't protect my mother, my kids, whoever that victim was to you, and you couldn't protect them. It damages who you are as a person, whoever you thought you were. You know, I'm, I'm going to protect my family. But things happen, and, uh, you know, they have to get help dealing with it. It destroys families. It's just, I've seen it destroy husbands. Men are fixers. Right? You guys fix this. Oh, honey, it's broke. Okay, I got it. Fix it. But when you see your wife crying for her child and you can't fix it, you how can you fix that? You can't. You can't fix You can't do anything. That, and then they're like, oh, she got to stop crying. They're crying inside. But mothers are different. You know, you know, sugar and spice and everything nice and snails and tails and puppy dog tails or whatever it is, men are a little harder, but mothers are, they take it to heart and they cry and the husband can't fix it and he feels like this is forever. It could be if those parents, if those mothers don't go get help, you need help dealing with the grief. It's not a turn on the switch and turn it off thing. There's a process, forgiveness, forgiving yourself. I wasn't there. I wasn't supposed to be there. I couldn't protect her because I wasn't there, but I wasn't supposed to be there. You know what I'm saying? So it's a forgiveness process first and then forgiving the perpetrators. I had to do that. I thought of some, ooh-wee, I don't even want to say things I thought I could do, and I probably could have done them, really. But I had to come to the realization I would be right there where they are. So <laughs> that's not going to happen. But, you know, it, it's, a, it's a process and it takes time. And who mothers, I tell them, who are we to say it's not okay to talk about your child? Whenever you feel like talking about your baby, talk about them. If they don't want to hear it, they can leave. And then every time I talk about my baby don't mean I'm ready to cry. Why are you crying? I'm just talking about who she was, sharing some fun things. People think you want to cry. I don't want to cry. I want to tell you about the time she tried to challenge me. She's standing 5'7", and I'm only 5'1". You know, that was funny to me then. These are things that we share with her life. But um, this grief is, uh, it can destroy Kids, siblings, all of it, 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 it's, it doesn't have any um, exemptions when it attacks, you know? For love of my child, it's hard to quantify how your love for your children, how much impact it's had in the world. It's a long list of laws that have changed, mm-hmm. people in jail, yeah, victims, families that feel... Better. Some justice. Mm-hmm. Mothers who understand grief or how to 
handle it mm-hmm. a little bit better because of you speaking publicly into them. Mm-hmm. And now in this show, helping us lead off a powerful season about the love that a mother and a father and parents and foster parents mm-hmm. and everyone can have for their children. Mm-hmm. So on behalf of everyone listening, I want to thank you for everyone that you've impacted. I'm sure it's Mother's Day is right around the corner. It's- oh, yeah. I don't look forward to it, but it's there. I appreciate it. I am a servant, first and foremost. And if I can help, that's what I do. I'm not a chicken. I don't run. Somebody told me uh, I was a firefighter. You know, the firefighter runs to the fire and everybody else run out, but I run towards the fire. Whatever the issue is, whatever, I'm headed straight to confront it. And uh, it's I appreciate you putting on such a show because there are a lot of people who are grieving quietly and or have not addressed it. You know, husbands leaving their families because they can't deal with it. Life is tough. So what? Suck it up, buttercup. You know, we we have issues and we have to deal with them. We can't. This not going away. Can't sugarcoat it. You know, uh, look the other way. It's not happening. So we have to address those issues. And you gave. You have presented something that hopefully will help a lot of families. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. What an extraordinary life story. If this story moved you, help enable our mission and keep this advertising-free podcast going by chipping in $5 at bellystory.com. I'm responsible and accountable for this podcast, but I don't do it alone. Milos Brochetta is our sound engineer. Artie Wu is our advisor, and many others have helped along the way to bring the story to life. Thank you for listening. I'm David All, and this is Belly of the Beast Life Stories and Beyond. Thank you for rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts and sharing it with a friend or two. Stay tuned. I'm working on some stories that you need to hear.